0: So we begin our time of worship today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings of this day, thanking you for the blessings of this season, and the fact that we have uh, uh, time to reflect on the birth of your son. We enjoy family and friends and uh, gifts and all of the beauty of this season. Lord, we ask that you would work through the carols and the uh, celebrations that we have, the fellowships that we have, the word that we study and remember from the stories of Jesus' birth, that they might encourage us and build us up, that we might leave this place ready to serve you. Father, I pray that you would bless me now as I bring your word, that you would empower me by your spirit to speak the words that you would have your people to hear. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to turn my mic down just a ahead. Sounds like a little bit of an echo. That's better. I don't hear as much of it now. Well, uh, today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 as we begin to consider in this Christmas season the birth of Jesus. We're going to start with a story that you might not think has much to do with Jesus or the, uh, or the story of his birth, but I feel like has a lot to do with it. Um, and, you know, over the years... Uh, there has been a movement, one that is, is really in the headlines all the time, the, mo- the feminist movement, uh, that when it started back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, certainly had a legitimate claim because women could not vote. At that time, it was called the, the Women's Suffrage uh, movement in which the uh, women campaigned for the ability to vote, uh, particularly because they wanted to vote on an amendment to ban alcohol because their husbands weren't coming home after work. Uh, but the, they uh, they campaigned and earned or, or gained the right that they should have had to start with to vote. And and all of that was great and good. But then there became a, another wave of movement in the 60s uh, called the Second Wave Feminist Movement, uh, which started to argue for more uh, issues related to work and all of that. And then finally, you have today what's known as Third Wave Feminism, which tends to find oppression under every rock (laughs) It's it's tend to exaggerate the needs and the the concerns of women to the point that it's just, in my opinion, and I say this recognizing I'm a man, uh, it's just become a little ridiculous. But even with that said, uh, there's no denying, especially when it relates to the past when it especially relates to ancient times that women experienced oppression in a very real sense. At best in ancient times they were considered to be second-rate citizens but at worst and in what tended to be the practice they were considered property. Their value was wrapped up pretty much entirely in their ability to produce heirs. And if they could not produce an heir, then they weren't worth much at all. So it's interesting that there is a theme that we find in Scripture of barrenness. And this theme or this thread runs throughout Scripture. At face value, if you were to read any text of scripture especially the old testament you might think that the bible isn't any different than any other ancient book in its treatment of women just consider the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, for example, that set prices on for the redemption of men and women. And when it came to a comp- comparison of what a woman was worth in her redemption and a man was worth in his redemption, it was far less value for a woman than for a man. Or in what the law requires of the cleanliness laws for women versus men. Women were required to follow much more strict uh, cleanliness laws with the Old Testament law. And uh, the Old Testament law didn't allow women to obtain property. It did allow them to own property if their husband or their father or a near relative was not uh, or near merit male relative was not alive, but they could not obtain property just out, outright and own property of their own. Yet written over the top of that standard ancient story is another story. The other story is a tale of God's grace and favor being showered on women who would otherwise be marginalized. In Scripture, the barren woman receives special favor from God. This favor tells us, in my opinion, something about God's purpose in the salvation of the world that he would bring through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And that special favor is reflected in the birth stories that we see of Jesus. So over the next five weeks... Let's search these stories about the women of Christmas to find the beauty of the gospel in the ways that God favors the woman who is marginalized and oppressed by the world because of her barrenness, because of her inability to do anything that the world would consider valuable. And to do that, we need to start with the first barren woman we ever come to in Scripture, that is Sarah, the the wife of Abraham so let's read together Genesis chapter 18 starting in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 15 Genesis chapter 18 verse 1 it says and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold three men were standing in front of him And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to, his young, to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them until the tree, uh, under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. So, there's, there are four facts from this passage that I want you to notice about Sarah today and the story of God's blessing on Sarah and God's blessing on Abraham. The first fact is one that we're told at the very beginning of the story of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, we read, Now Sarah, which was Sarah's original name, was barren. She had no child. The fact is given to us right before the great promise of God in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, when he comes to Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. So. I'm sure when Sarah hears this promise from God that he's going to bless Abraham, he's going to make him into a great nation, I'm sure she felt this initial hopefulness that maybe now God is going to fix the problem of my barrenness. I mean, at this point in the story in Genesis chapter 11 verse 30, we know that Sarah is about 70 years old. So she's already uh, up in age and, and uh, has been barren probably for 50 years or more and has lived with the burden of that barrenness. You can imagine that other women probably chided her for her inability to have a child. I mean, she was probably comparing herself to other women and comparing every time a, child, a new baby was born in the clan. I'm sure it, it grated on her that she was not able to have children. Abraham likely looked on her with disappointment. I mean, uh, how could he not, given the pressures of that day to have an heir and to produce the next family line of the family that he was in and the clan that he was in? Her in-laws, I'm sure, uh, made snide little comments about the lack of a grandchild or an heir. The second fact that I want you to notice about Sarah is that Sarah was apparently very beautiful. Even in her older years. Twice in the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham is willing to give up his wife because kings uh, that they came to in their journey. Were likely to covet her because of how beautiful she was, and so he made an arrangement with her that any time they came to a very powerful man, she was to say that he was uh, that she was his sister, not his wife, so that the king or the lord wouldn't kill them, uh, kill him, and take her for his own wife. And so twice we read that she was so beautiful that Abraham was willing, pretty much, to give her up to save his own neck. But this beauty sets up. An interesting paradox for Sarah. As it's often assumed, even in our day, that God's favor rests on people who are talented or who are rich or who are beautiful, right? And there's psychological studies that have been done as to how we tend to favor uh, those who are attractive and assume that they are smart because they are attractive, which isn't always the case, but that's the assumption we make based on beauty. So, Sarah has the blessing of beauty, but she does not have the blessing of what was the greatest expectation of a woman of her day. So, what seemed to be a blessing in her beauty only highlighted the curse that she was under. Third, Sarah was no different than many others who were put under the pressure and the strain of the societal expectations and the failure of her expectation in that she was willing to compromise her marriage, her morality, the promise of God for the sake of acceptance. In Genesis chapter 16, you remember that faithful story of uh, her terrible decision, her terrible suggestion to Abraham that he should take her maidservant Hagar and have a child by her so that in a way she could have a child through Hagar. And that plan, as you probably know, ended with family strife and injustice that in some ways still goes on even today. The last thing that I want you to notice, the last fact that I want you to notice about Sarah is in verse 11 of the passage we read today that Sarah was not only barren, but at this point in her life, she had hit menopause. So there is no physical possibility of the conception of a child now. You can imagine her reasoning in the story that we have when she hears that God has promised that she will have a child this time next year. You can imagine her reasoning and thinking, surely God could possibly make me fertile when I still had the hormones and all the processes that would give me the ability to produce a child, but now there is just no way that he could do anything for me now. It's so ridiculous to her that she laughs to herself while eavesdropping on Abraham and God's conversation as God makes this final promise to Abraham. (coughs) She questions, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, there are two reasons that she notes for her skepticism. First of all, she says she's worn out. And as a man, I have sense enough not to make anything of that. But (laughs) what she means is, number one, she's old. Number two, she's barren. And number three, she's postmenopausal. But second... She also notes that her husband is old, and there, that carries with it a whole other set of challenges that make this just impossible, physically impossible. There is no way in her mind that God can fulfill his promise that he is right now making to Abraham. Yet God, in his sovereignty, knows that she has laughed, and he knows that she is questioning His ability to do what He has promised. So notice in verse 13 and 14 what God asks. He says, why does she laugh? And why does she question me? And then He makes this beautiful statement. It's something that you ought to underline. He says, is anything impossible for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, This is a rhetorical question, for the answer to this question is absolutely and emphatically no. Nothing is impossible for God. And we know that's true because we know the rest of this story. We are told in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. God took the impossibilities of Sarah's circumstances and brought joy and laughter out of it. And there's a beautiful and poetic twist to this story in the naming of Isaac because Isaac is Hebrew for laughter. So God took the skeptical laughter of a woman who had been beaten down by the hardness of her life, and from that, he brought laughter and joy of the new life of a son of promise. So uh, barrenness carries a real spiritual dimension to it in the Bible. It is, barrenness is a form of death, you might say. Not an immediate personal death, but a death of the family line. It is a hopeless state because it means that there's no future for the family. You could say that everyone who is born (coughs) is born into a state of spiritual barrenness. You're born with good things. You're born with gifts and talents. You live and work and uh, try to provide and put food on the table for your family. You raise a family and you send them off into the world. But after all of that toil and that hardship and that work, what does it get you? Because death ultimately comes. And after death, there's judgment. All of the stuff that you built... It'll decay and go away in a hundred years or less. Uh, The family that you have, sure, that's great for your children and your grandchildren, but after so many years, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren, at some point, your name will be forgotten. So what does it all mean if... The life that you produced, you might produce a bunch of fruit, but at the end of the world end of the life, at the end of your life, there's nothing but fruitlessness, because it all ends in death and judgment. As Ecclesiastes puts it, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit. But the Christmas story gives us hope in the midst of that barrenness. It gives us hope that God favors the one who is barren and he gives life where it seems to be impossible. He turns sorrow into laughter and joy. God promised in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That promise is fascinating because it comes in the midst of the most tumultuous time in the history of the nation of Judah, the place, the the nation to which God is making this prophecy. And he tells uh, King Ahaz in the middle of a promise that he will protect his nation and that he will bring them through their current crisis. And it looks like that's not going to happen. It looks like there's no way that they can defeat the armies that are pressing in on them and, and they haven't shown any track record of being able to defeat them in the past. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a son that I am going to bring about the impossible. And that son is the fact that a virgin will conceive and have a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, Ahaz dies. The nation is ultimately taken into captivity into Babylon. They're allowed to come back after 70 years by the king of Persia, and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall. But nothing is the same. The glory of God is not in the temple. The nation as a whole is really not a nation. They're conquered time and again by Persia and then by Greece and then ultimately by Rome. They never have their an official king on the throne, even after uh, winning some independence under the Maccabees. They think that they. That if you were to look at the history of Israel and the way that they were brought back from exile, it was a beautiful picture of deliverance by God, but it wasn't a complete deliverance. Things weren't the same. And in the time that this prophecy is made, It seems as though there is no hope, that the world is dark, that this promise seems to be an impossibility. It seems to be an impossibility for one because it is a physical impossibility for a virgin to conceive and bear a son. For another, it is a time that is just far too dark, a time that is far too sinful, a time that is far too evil for God to dwell with his people as the name Emmanuel promises that this person will. But in that impossibility, in that darkness of times, a little baby is born to a virgin girl in the town of Bethlehem. You see, friend, nothing is impossible with God. Even... The salvation of your soul. And you may think, oh, now, preacher, there is no hope for me. You don't know what I've done. There's no way that I could be forgiven. There's no way that I could be accepted before God. There is no way that my life could be redeemed. But hear me. Nothing is impossible for God. You may think, yes, but I keep going back to my old sin. I've accepted Jesus, but I keep going back to those sins or I keep wrestling with the guilt of my sins. And I just can't seem to feel like I'm forgiven. How is it that I'm forgiven when I keep going back to the sins of my past? But hear me again. Nothing is impossible for God. You may think, but I'm in the midst of a terrible trial and it seems that there's no hope. Uh, It seems that God has forgotten me and can he deliver me? Can he heal me? Will there be a promise of resurrection even though my body is is decaying and dying? How is that promise to be fulfilled? Nothing is impossible for God. Trust in the promise of God. Trust in the God of promise who makes the barren to laugh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessings of your salvation. Lord, that you achieve the impossible when it seems that there is no hope, when it seems that there is no physical way that we could be delivered. It seems that there is no spiritual way that we could escape the judgment of hell. You, at the right time and in the perfection of your plan, you sent your Son in the darkest of times, in the most impossible way. You sent your Son to be the light of the world and the redemption of those who believe in him. Father, I pray that you would call us to respond to you in faith. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would Turn them in faith towards you that they might know the uh, ability of God to redeem them and to bring them into his family. Father, I pray that you would bless us all as we respond respond to you in faith at this time. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.